Well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6? And for those of you who are new, we are studying the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday morning, and we find ourselves in a section that is called the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus gave it from a mount overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The Sermon on the Mount actually covers chapters 5 through 7, and we said that we just finished the longest section in the sermon, which runs from verse 21 through verse 48 of chapter 5. In that section, Jesus was dealing with heretical teaching, again, focused on the scribes and Pharisees. Now, starting in chapter 6, he moves from heretical teaching and begins to address the subject of hypocritical living. And this is, again, directed at the scribes and Pharisees. In this section, which runs from verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, Jesus gives three examples of hypocrisy in religious practices. And then he commands his disciples to practice these things, but not like the scribes and Pharisees, because they're hypocrites, but to do it with the right heart. And the three areas that Jesus zeroes in on are giving, praying, and fasting. But as we pointed out last week, it wasn't the act of giving, praying, or fasting that he was condemning. It was the motive, really, of the scribes and Pharisees behind their giving and praying and fasting. Notice what Jesus told his disciples in this section. He said, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, verse 2, and when you pray, verse 5, moreover, when you fast, verse 16, he said, when, not if, indicating that the Lord Jesus Christ considered these things to be valid, important parts of our spiritual disciplines. Giving and praying and fasting are good. In fact, they're necessary. The real issue here is hypocrisy, though. He said, when you give, pray, fast, don't be like the hypocrites. Now, last week we looked at the right and wrong way to give, which covered verses 1 through 4. And starting today, we want to look at the right and wrong ways to pray, which Jesus talks about in verses 5 through 15. Now, before we actually get into the text, which again talks about the right, right and wrong ways to pray, I want to take a minute to talk about prayer itself. Prayer has got to be one of the easiest concepts taught in the Bible, and yet at the same time one of the most confusing. And a lot of Christians are a little confused about the whole subject of prayer. For those in the church who have a hyper view of God's sovereignty, they believe that our prayers really don't change anything because God in his sovereignty is going to do whatever he wants to do, whether we pray or not. And these folks, I've heard them say, look, prayer will change us, but not our circumstances. And yet to those who hold to this view, the Bible says things like James 5.16, the earnest prayer of a righteous person, a Christian, has great power and produces wonderful results. And then in Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31, God said, I sought for a man among my people who would stand in the gap and make up a wall between me and them that I would not have to judge the land. But since no one was praying, therefore my judgment came. And it sounds like God didn't want to bring judgment on the nation, but because no one was really interceding and praying, God's judgment fell. And then at the other end of the prayer spectrum, you have those who believe that everything God does is contingent upon our prayers. 
and that a lack of prayer kind of handcuffs God so that if we don't pray, he can't work. These folks hyperemphasize man's responsibility when it comes to people getting saved or the work of God getting done. These are the folks that have a hard time sleeping at night because they've taken everything on themselves. And if they don't pray hours and hours for family members that are unsaved, they might never get saved and go to hell. It's all on me, right? And they take all this on themselves, all this responsibility, all the weight of everyone's salvation and all the work of God. And that's tragic because you're going to get yourself a nervous breakdown thinking everything depends on you. And yet to those who hold to this view, the word of God says things like Deuteronomy 32 verse 39. Where God says, now see that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. And then again in Ezekiel 24 verse 14. God said, I the Lord have spoken it. It shall come to pass. I have said it. I will do it. Wow. Do you see the absolute sovereignty of God in those passages? God is saying, look, I'm God. I don't need permission to do what I'm going to do. In fact, I'm going to do what I want to do and nobody's going to stop me. I mean, this is something that Christians have debated since the church first began. Because Christians, since the very beginning, have gravitated to either end of the spectrum on this issue. Either emphasizing God's sovereignty over man's responsibility or vice versa. I like what author Jim Boyce said, because he demonstrates this in the following statement. He said, and I quote, some time ago, I heard a story that illustrates how some of these questions trouble even very mature Christians. At one point in the course of their very influential ministries, George Whitfield, the Calvinist evangelist, and John Wesley, the Arminian evangelist, were preaching together in the daytime and rooming together in the same boarding house each night. One evening, after a particularly strenuous day, the two of them returned to the boarding house exhausted and prepared for bed. When they were ready, each knelt beside the bed to pray. Whitfield, the Calvinist, prayed like this. He said, Lord, we thank thee for all those with whom we spoke today. And we rejoice that their lives and destinies are entirely in thy hand. Honor our efforts according to thy perfect will. Amen. He rose from his knees and got into bed. Wesley, who had hardly gotten past the invocation of his prayer in this length of time, looked up from his side of the bed and said, Mr. Whitfield, is this where your Calvinism leads you? Then put his head down and went on praying. Whitfield just shrugged his shoulders and stayed in bed and went to sleep. About two hours later, Whitfield woke up and there was Wesley still on his knees beside the bed. So Whitfield got up and went around the bed to where Wesley was kneeling. When he got there, he found Wesley asleep. <laughs> he shook him by the sh shoulder and said to him, Mr. Wesley, is this where your Arminianism leads you? Well, of course, that's a humorous story, true story, but very humorous. The question is, which one of these very godly men was right? Look, you will find that the truth most often, if not all the time, lies in the middle of the two extremes. Is God sovereign? The answer is yes. Is man responsible? The answer is also yes. And people say, yes, but how do you reconcile the two? 
Folks, God hasn't called us to reconcile them, just to believe that his word teaches both, which means both are true. And therefore, I'm to believe in both God's sovereignty, that look, God is on the throne, he does all things according to his will, and everything is going to work out exactly the way he has purposed. But I'm also to believe in my responsibility, that I am to pray, and that I am to serve him with all my heart. I think someone struck a balance as much as you can when they said, pray as if everything depended upon God. And work as if everything depends upon you. I think that's a good way to look at it. All right, let's get into our text for this morning. And I have uh, titled this section from verses 5 to 15, Right Praying. Right Praying. And before we look at the right way to pray, which Jesus will get into, let's look at what he says is the wrong way to pray, which covers basically... Verses 5 through 8, really 5 and 7, but then he corrects it in verses 6 and 8. We'll lump it all together because he's dealing with the wrong way to pray in these verses, all right? So first of all, the first wrong way to pray is in verse 5. Jesus said to his disciples, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Well, the first way not to pray is to do it in such a way as to be seen by men. In other words, to showcase how spiritual you are. And again, the word hypocrite there comes from the Greek word hypocrites, which literally meant a mask wearer, a mask wearer. And it was used back then of an actor up on stage playing a part. And back then, as you've seen in some of the movies, they would have masks on sticks and they would hold them up to their faces. And the masks had these very exaggerated smiles or frowns so that even if you were in the back of the auditorium uh, or the theater, you could tell who the good guys and the bad guys were. But it came to represent putting on an act and pretending to be something you're not. That's how we would use the word today. We don't think of mask wear. We think of somebody who's playing a part, who's not being honest about who they really are. And what they believe in a lot of areas. Now, why did Jesus refer to the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites when they prayed? Well, he says it in verse 5. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. You see, the Pharisees had designated the third hour, the sixth hour, and the ninth hour as times of prayer. Or in other words, at 9 a.m., 12 noon, and at 3 p.m. They would faithfully gather either in the temple court or in the synagogue for a time of prayer. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with that. We read how that when Daniel was in captivity in Babylon, that Daniel, who was a very godly man, and no hypocrite for sure, would open up his window three times a day and pray towards Jerusalem. Nothing wrong with praying three times a day. The Pharisees were doing it, though, not to seek the Lord, but to be seen by men. How do we know this? Well, Jesus tells us about their practice, and we know this from history, that on the way to their prayer meetings, the Pharisees would often stop on the corner of the street and begin to offer long, ostentatious prayers. As if to say to people, look, we are so eager to pray that we can't wait to get to the temple or to the synagogue. We're such men of prayer, you know, we just can't wait to get to church, okay? We, we just have to stop. Wherever we are, because, oh, we just 
so love to pray to the Lord. The Greek word used here for street does not mean little alleyway. It's a word that means a broad street, or in other words, a main thoroughfare, which meant the corner was on a large intersection. Obviously, that would make sense, right? Because if you want to be seen by men, you don't go in some alley somewhere. You go where there's the most traffic. Where when you stop and you offer your prayers up to God, everyone can see you, the most people possible, and say, oh, wow. Look at how spiritual this guy. He can't even wait to get to the temple. He is such a man of prayer. And you say, well, yeah, but that was them back then. We don't do that kind of stuff today. <laughs> really? Um, one author put it this way. He said, you know, we still do that in our own subtle ways, don't we? We say to people, yes, I was praying this morning at 3 o'clock, and the Lord put you on my heart. And we suddenly, he said, let people know that we are in a place of continual prayer. Jesus says, don't do it. It's hypocrisy. We have subtle ways. I mean, the Pharisees were very ostentatious. But, you know, let's be honest. Most of us are more subtle. We want to showcase our spirituality. All right? Um, In all my years of ministry and all the people I've come in contact with, the most spiritual people were the ones who acted the most normal. They didn't flaunt their spirituality. They were down-to-earth, ordinary people. And yet you could tell by their countenance and by the way they talked, the way they looked at things, they were deeply in communion with the Lord. The folks are always flaunting their spirituality, you know, always dropping little hints about how much time they spend in prayer every day or in the Bible and so on and so forth. You know what? They're the ones I have found who are the least spiritual, the least spiritual. What about this prayers in the synagogue? They love to be to pray on the street corners and in the synagogues. Well, prayers in the synagogues were led by a member of the synagogue who would stand up in front. And usually to be invited to lead the prayer in the synagogue on that day was considered a great honor bestowed only upon, quote unquote, the most spiritual member of the congregation. So they love that, okay? To be asked, well, Brother Pharisee, can you come up here and, and lead us in prayer and so on? Oh, wow. See, they, would, they really loved that. But again, it was nothing more than showtime spirituality. Look at me. Look at how spiritual I am. In response to this, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. He said, look, if you're doing it for the recognition of men, when they applaud you, you better enjoy that because that's all the reward you're getting. You were doing it for the praise of men. When men praise you, you know what? God's not going to give you any reward for that. In contrast to this, Jesus said, here's the right way to do it, guys. But you, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, don't misunderstand what the Lord is saying. He is not condemning all public prayer some people say well see it's wrong to pray in public as jesus said we're to go into our private room and close the door and just pray between us and the father well that's how you should pray most of the time but he's not condemning all forms of public or corporate prayer because we know in the old testament god's people met many times for corporate prayer right public prayer we know that the church itself was born in a prayer meeting acts chapter 2 And that the early church practiced corporate prayer numerous times. We read of several in the book of Acts. Acts 2.42, 12.12, 13.3, 
14, 23, 20, verse 36, just to name a few places where we see them gathered together for corporate prayer. So obviously, Jesus is not condemning public prayer. He's condemning hypocrisy in prayer. He's condemning those that only pray in public to be seen by others, to showcase their spirituality. Now, in verse 7, he condemns another wrong practice of the scribes and Pharisees when it came to the way they prayed. He said in verse 7, And when you pray, do not use, what? Vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. You see, the first century Greeks and Romans believed in a pantheon of gods. Gods who, for the most part, were indifferent to the problems and prayers of men. And because these gods were so apathetic to their worshippers' needs, the pagan believed he needed to pray repetitively to, first of all, get the attention of the god that they were seeking to pray to. And once the worshiper got this God's attention, he or she had to pray repeatedly to ensure that the God properly understood what the person was asking. And they continued to offer repetitive prayer so that they would wear the God down, wear the apathy down, the indifference, so that the supplicant would prove to this deity that they were worthy to have their prayer answered. But also worshipers of these pagan gods also believed that their words, the words they used, carried some kind of magical power. Thus, the more often these words were used, the more powerful was the prayer. Now, that was the pagan mindset. Unfortunately, the Jews began to pick up some of these Gentile practices, and they came to believe that the true value and power of prayer was found in the quantity of rather than the quality of the prayer. In other words, when it came to prayer, they believed the longer, the better. I know a few Christians who seem to subscribe to that. The Jews supposed that their prayers would only be heard by God, as Jesus put it in verse 7, for their many words like the heathens practiced. In fact, the Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day said things like, and I'm quoting them, whoever is long in prayer is heard and Whenever the righteous make their prayer long, their prayer is heard. Now, the sad thing about it is we have somehow adopted this mindset, many of us. And it's kind of crept into our thinking where we believe that the longest prayers are the most effective prayers. And in fact, it's the length of the prayer that makes it effective instead of, you know, the earnestness with which we pray or the faith that we pray with. I mean, think about this for a second. How many of us here, uh, even to this day, feel in our hearts that God really only listens to our prayers if we pray longer kind of prayers? That those quick prayers that we shoot up to heaven, those are okay, but those are not real serious. I mean, you know, God is saying, okay, you you can do better than that, can't you? I mean, and the Lord is, it's almost like, well, those, you know, if God's really going to hear us, we've got to take the time to really, you know, pray. Hey, look. I'm sure Peter was glad that that wasn't true when he was walking on the Sea of Galilee one day and took his eyes off the Lord and began to sink. If Jesus only listened to long prayers, he would have gone down long before he finished praying. Instead, he shoots a quick prayer to the Lord, Lord, save me. And what did Jesus say? Oh, you can do better than that, Peter. That was weak, man, weak. Come on, Peter. No, the Lord reached out and saved him, right? 
I don't know what it is. We just think that, you know, God isn't going to really listen to us unless we pray these long prayers. Well, the truth is, verse 8, Jesus said, Therefore, don't be like those who feel they've got to go on and on and on and everything else, vain repetition. Uh, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. I am so thankful that the Lord said this. Because what He is saying is, prayer is not for the purpose of informing God. Sometimes, and I think mostly young Christians especially, but sometimes we think that, you know, if we don't spell everything out in great detail, God's not going to know the situation. And how can he answer my prayer if he doesn't really know the whole story? So we feel we've got to go into great detail and lay out everything very, you know, very specifically. Otherwise, you know, he's not going to know what's going on. Folks, God knows what's going on. He knows what's going on better than we know what's going on. Prayer is not for the purpose of informing God of anything. Jesus said, look, our Heavenly Father already knows what we need before we even ask Him. So be brief and get to the point. Especially in a corporate time of prayer. I have seen people over the years who have absolutely killed a prayer meeting. They just strangle the thing to death. I mean, I was reading about D.L. Moody. Uh, This is going back years ago, of course, and At the time, Moody was holding noontime prayer in Chicago. So every 11 o'clock to 12 noon, uh, whoever wanted to come would gather in this large auditorium, and they would pray for an hour. Well, one day, a gentleman gets up and begins to pray. And this guy was going on and on. He was droning on and on, and he was killing the prayer meeting. In fact, I'm not sure who it was that I was reading that happened to be there at that time. I was reading a, a story from somebody who was actually there at the prayer meeting. And said, man, this guy was going on and on and on, and I was about ready to leave. And Moody got the sense that people were getting ready to go because this guy was killing the prayer meeting. Do you know what Moody did? Well, the guy's droning on and on about, you know, in his prayer. Moody jumps up and says, all right, folks, while our brother is finishing his prayer, let's all sing a song. And so, and so he led the, you know, it's a way to shut the guy down, you know. So if you come to one of our corporate prayer meetings and you're droning on and on, I may have to say that. I don't know. But look, I don't want you to confuse now. This is important. Don't confuse vain repetition with persistence in prayer. Okay? Vain repetition is mindlessly repeating the same prayer over and over again. Like I was taught to do when I was going to Catholic grade school. And I remember one of the nuns one time as we were standing in line for something. She says, okay, now, here's how you pass the time. Whenever you're waiting for something, just begin to say, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Just over and over again. Or when I would go to confession, the priest would often say, okay, now for your penance, uh, say, ten our fathers, ten Hail Marys. Well, if you were raised in the Catholic Church, what did you do with that prayer, those prayers? You, you got in the pew somewhere, knelt down, and you put your brain in neutral and rattled them off. Vain repetition. You know, I wasn't even thinking about what I was saying. I'm just rattling off this thing, okay? You know, and, and I had it down, man. I could rattle it maybe off no problem at all. Just rattle it off and wasn't even thinking about it. Now, I don't want to pick just on the Catholics because there's some Protestants who do the same thing. In charismatic circles, they practice repeating what they call power words. They believe certain words contain more power than other words. And therefore, they believe that if they repeat these certain words over and over again, it's going to induce the Lord to act on their behalf. Folks, there are things coming into the church today that we need to understand are not biblical Christianity. 
They are actually westernized Hinduism, New Age stuff that's come into the church dressed in pseudo-Christian terms and stuff, but it's really part of the apostasy of the last day. That's not to say that well-intentioned Christians are trying to do anything wrong. They're not. They're, they're just buying into it without thinking through some of this stuff, okay? I mean, where in God's word does it say that certain words have more power? Than, where does it say that words have any power? Oh, well, in the book of Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the dry land appear. See, God said it. That means there's power in words. Uh, maybe what it's saying is the reason all these things happened and were created when God said was not because God said it, but it was because it was God who said it. But you have people that buy into this stuff, and they repeat certain words or phrases over and over again because in their minds it energizes the spirit realm and angels come and begin to do their bidding. I've heard the teachings. It's using mantras and incantations, basically. Those in the occult believe that words have power. That's the mentality behind incantations, that certain words have power, you string them together, and you have a phrase that has a power. It energizes the spirit realm and the spirits come and do your bidding. In Buddhism, they believe that every time you spin a prayer wheel, it shoots a prayer up to your deity. So they keep spinning this thing over and over again because they want to fire up as many prayers as possible to their deity. Well, it's one thing if the pagans do it. They're ignorant. But when God's people do it, it's a tragedy. We should know what God has said. We should stay away from formulas and methodologies that are obviously not biblical. This is vain repetition, guys, just like the Lord condemned. But look, persistence in prayer is something altogether different. Something altogether different. We are called not to pray vain repetitions. In other words, put your mind in neutral and rattle off the prayer over and over again. But we are called to be persistent in prayer. Turn to Luke chapter 11. In Luke 11, Jesus Christ is teaching his disciples about prayer. In many ways, it parallels Matthew 6. But one of the things the Lord does is he's talking about prayer and teaching his disciples how to pray. They came to him and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And one of the things he does in verses 5 through 10 is he teaches them the importance of persistence in prayer. And he said to them, to his disciples, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, from within the house, and say, Do not trouble me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, verse 8, Though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give to him as many as he needs. Now let me stop there for a moment. Jesus often taught by comparison, and then he often taught by contrast give you a classic example of teaching by contrast. Remember the story, similar story, how this woman came to this unjust judge looking for justice, and she kept coming and wanting justice, and he wouldn't give it to her because he said, I don't fear God or man. He just you know, wasn't a good guy. And so he wouldn't give her what she wanted, but she kept coming every day, every day. And finally, she wore the guy down, and he said, look, though I fear not God nor man, this woman wearies me with her continual coming. I'm going to give her what she wants just to get her out of here. And Jesus said, 
Even so, your heavenly Father. And he goes on to, to give a teaching. Now, if you read that, you go, well, what do you mean? We've got to badger God into giving us what we want because he doesn't really want to help us. No, no, no. God's not like the heathen deities, okay? Jesus is saying, look, if even an unjust judge can be badgered into giving somebody what they want, how much more so your heavenly Father who desires to give good gifts to his children. So that was teaching by contrast. Jesus is teaching by contrast here. He is saying that, look, even though this guy won't give to a neighbor some loaves of bread because, you know, the guy's his neighbor, yet if through persistence he will rise and give this guy whatever he wants. And so in contrast to that, verse 9, so I say to you, in the light of how much God wants to do for you as his kids is the idea, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, here's the literal Greek which teaches us, you know, which shows that Jesus was teaching us to be persistent. The literal Greek is this way. Please ask. It's emphatic. Please ask and keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Please seek and keep on seeking, and you will find. Please knock and keep on knocking, and it will be open to you. People read that and go, well, I don't quite get it because if God wants to answer my prayer and eventually does answer my prayer, why do I have to keep asking and seeking and knocking? Why does he just give it to me? All right? It sounds like uh, he's, you know, just playing games with, with us by not giving us what we want or need right away. It may seem that way, but I think one author really hit it on the head when he said, and I quote, This is not the taunt of an indifferent God playing hard to get, treating us like puppies, trying to teach us to beg. And if we stand up on our hind legs and yap loud enough, he'll drop a biscuit in our mouth. No, this is the heart of a loving Father exhorting us, even pleading with us to stay in constant communion with him because he loves us so much, end quote. Look, if God gave to us everything we asked, the second we asked it, guess what? We wouldn't pray very much. All we would do is rush into his presence, throw our request on his desk, and out we'd go. We have to understand that the real benefit of prayer doesn't necessarily come in the answer. It comes in the process. Because the process of persistence in prayer especially keeps us on our knees in the presence of God. And you know what? Whatever God eventually gives to us is secondary from the way it changes us. So prayer does change us. But spending all that time in his presence begins to cultivate his heart within us. So prayer is not something that a Christian should do, you know, once a week at church or once a year in a retreat. It's what we do every day. As we say to the Lord, Lord, today I need your help. I want your presence. I want to be used by you, Lord. I can do nothing apart from you. God, bathe me in your presence. Lead me by your spirit. I'm totally dependent on you for everything. Jesus called that abiding. Paul exhorted us to pray without ceasing, which means an attitude of the heart. And as we pray, God will either answer our prayers with a yes, a no, or not now. If he answers yes, make sure to thank him, and don't let that answer, whatever it is, come between you and him. What do I mean? There are good things that we pray for that God wants to answer, but when he does, there's a danger that they might take us 
from him. Again, what do I mean? Well, some of you guys are out of work. And you're praying fervently and persistently that God would give you a job. That's right. And God wants to give you a job because God has told us that we need to be productive. If you don't work, you don't eat. He's talking about those who could work but refuse to work. So you're praying for a job. Now, while you're praying for a job, what's your prayer life been like? Pretty intense, right? You never pray with more fervencies when you really need something. And so what is it doing? It's keeping you on your knees. And you literally have to pray, God, give me this day my daily bread. Now, when God answers that prayer, it gives you a job. It's a good thing. But here's the danger of that. You don't have to pray every day. God, give me this day my daily bread. Because now I have a job. I can buy my own bread. I don't have to really pray with much fervency that God will provide because he's already provided. I have a job. And a good thing like getting a job could become a hindrance to our relationship with God if you let it because it may, will make you independent. And folks, independence is what got us into the mess we're in, in the first place. Where God says, don't do this. I mean, I will bless you, but one thing you can't do, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did man do? He acted independently of God's will, did his own thing, and here we are. And we get saved, and I've said this before, let me say it again. The Christian life is not hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. It's all about surrendering your will to him to become totally dependent on him for all things. So be careful that when God answers you and gives you what you ask, that you thank him for it, but don't let it come between you and him. Secondly, if he answers no, you better praise God. Because as I look back on my life, a lot of the things I prayed for that God said no to, wow, am I thankful. Am I thankful. Because looking back, that would have been a disaster if he had given me what I wanted. But if God does say no, be mature enough to say, Father, thank you. Not my will, but your will be done. And sometimes he might be saying to you, well, yes, but not right now. In that situation, you keep on asking and seeking and knocking. Be persistent. So next week, God willing, we will look at a model prayer that Jesus gave. He didn't say, pray exactly like this. He said, you know, pray in this manner. And we'll look at what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is really not the Lord's Prayer. Jesus could not have prayed what we call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. He could not pray and forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against me. No way. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. We call it the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ before his crucifixion what we have in this section in matthew starting next week is what we should call the disciples prayer and and folks again this is not a prayer that was intended by god to be rattled off by rote i'm not saying you can't pray it word for word but if you do make sure you think upon everything you're praying and so we'll look at that next time but I want to just close this morning because this morning we stand at the 10th year 
anniversary of 9-11. Kind of a day like today, wasn't it? If you remember that day, it was a gorgeous day. I was at Walmart shopping, you know, getting whatever I was getting. When uh, a pastor friend of mine called and said a plane just flew into one of the towers of the Twin Towers. Of course, my reaction was, was horrified. And then he called back a few minutes later to tell me another plane had crashed into the other tower. And I said, we are under attack. This is no accident. We are under attack. And in fact, it came out that that was a terrorist attack that claimed almost 3,000 of our citizens. Horrible day. And we thank God for his mercy and grace that we have not suffered another terrorist attack like that since. Several have been tried, but they have always been thwarted. Either they didn't, they fizzled out, or somebody alerted the authorities. Folks, we need to pray. And during our five days of fasting and prayer, week after next, we are going to devote a lot of time to praying not just for our nation, of course we will, but also for the people of God, who many of whom seem to be asleep in the light. We need to pray for revival. But revival only comes through brokenness, confession, repentance, right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. We thank you, Father, that you are a good and a gracious God. A God who loves us. A God who wants to do good for us. But a God who is also holy and righteous. A God who said, if you will draw near to me, you will be found by me. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you forsake me, I will forsake you. If you live in rebellion against me, I will have to judge you. And Father, we are a nation that was founded in the fear of God. But we have become a nation, Lord, who has turned its back on you. A nation who is calling good evil and evil good. I remember, Lord, how Alex de Tocqueville, a French philosopher, came over to this country in the 19th century to study why we were so great as a nation. And he said he looked everywhere studying our nation. He studied businesses. He studied our form of government. And it wasn't until he went and studied the churches of America, and as he put it, found pulpits aflame with righteousness, did he understand the secret of our greatness, which he summed up in these words. He said, America is great because America is good. And if the day ever comes that America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Father, I fear those words were prophetic, and we are living them out right before our very eyes. When I see that clergy was banned from the 9-11 memorial service, I fear, Lord, we haven't learned anything. I fear we haven't learned anything. We go through the motions, and we give you lip service. But like Israel in the Old Testament, who was still very religious right at the time that you were about to judge them. And you said to the prophet Isaiah, I am so sick and tired of your singing, 
of your sacrifices. I'm so tired of your feast days and your new moons and your Sabbath celebrations. They are nauseating to me. They are an abomination to me because you offer me this religion, but your hearts are far from me. God forgive us. I fear that that sums up America to a T. We are still a very religious nation, and yet we are also a very unrighteous nation. We no longer fear our God. And as such, we flaunt our sins in your face, even attaching you to them and saying, God is for homosexuality. God is for abortion. God forgive us. We pray that you would revive your church. As you promise in your word, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayers from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. God, bring revival to your church. Break us, Lord, of our sin, of our carnality, of our apathy and complacency and materialism and selfishness. Many in the church have come to believe that you exist to make us happy instead of we exist to glorify you by being holy. Lord, our thinking is so twisted. Forgive us, Lord. Work in us that we might repent, that we our eyes might be opened, and we would see, Lord, how close we are to judgment. Father, we know that you sent the prophet Jonah to a godless city in the Assyrian Empire named Nineveh. These folks were not believers in you. They were pagans. And you sent Jonah the prophet to tell them if they didn't repent in 40 days, they would be completely judged and wiped out. And Lord, we know that Jonah didn't want to go. He wanted them to get judged. And so he finally, as you pressured him to go, brought a very unloving message that had really no hope in it. Forty days comes destruction. Forty days, and you guys are through. And yet, at the preaching of a prophet who didn't care, these pagans repented, and you spared them. Father, how much more so if your people called by your name go out and begin to preach out of a heart of love and concern for the lost as our Savior Jesus did? Is it too late for America if a pagan city like Nineveh could repent? I don't know if we've got 40 days left, Lord. We might have 40 months, 40 years. Who knows? But we feel in our hearts something is coming. And I don't believe it's something good unless we repent right now. Father, give us the grace to humble ourselves before you, to stop living hedonistic lives that revolve around our happiness and our immediate gratification. Give us a heart, Lord, for eternity, that we might live our lives from heaven's vantage point, seeing this life in the light of eternity, that we might, Lord, not lay up treasures on earth, not become entangled with the cares of this life, but become the sentinels that you've called us to be, watchmen on the wall, sounding the alarm, that people might hear and repent and be saved. Thank you, Lord. We don't know what's coming, 
But we know whatever is coming, you're on the throne. And you will remain on the throne forever. So give us grace, Lord, to trust in your sovereignty, but not to become lax in our responsibility. That we might serve you in these last days with all our hearts. And pray fervently, Lord, for your will to be done. That you might be glorified. For we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.